This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. In that reading that we just read together from Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, or they requested, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Now if we believe in God, then we must believe that God is the creator of all things and of ourselves. And that being the case, it must be that we find it important to have a conversation with that creator. If all our hope for the future rests in God, then it's important that we communicate with him. And prayer is our side of that conversation with God. To be effective, it must be done right. Now the disciples realised this, and in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, um, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So they'd been watching him praying. Now whether he was praying out loud and they heard it, we don't, we don't know. But there was something about the way that Jesus prayed that the disciples thought, we need to make sure we're doing something right, we're getting this right when we pray. Because we see our, our master praying so effectively. So the disciples said, teach us to pray. Now a major part of God's side of the conversation is what he's told us already through his word, through the Bible. And in it, he answers the disciples' question. So what we're going to do this afternoon is just to look through various parts of the Bible and find some answers to that question that the disciples asked, which we could equally well ask, how do we pray? First of all, I want to consider the question, when should we pray? How often should we pray? Now the Bible contains plenty of examples of routine and regular prayer, and it also contains examples of spontaneous prayers. Now we sometimes tend to think that routine makes things mundane or decreases their importance and that important things, if it's really important to us it should just spring from our own desire to do it it should be spontaneous and our heartfelt desire should, should make us just want to do it whenever it's needed now in, in all different aspects of life we find that that isn't the reality the reality is that habit and routine makes it easier for us to do the most important things of life that need doing often so that anything that we need to do regularly that it's important that we do regularly so eating we tend to eat at set meal times not everybody does but we don't tend to for instance just eat when, when we feel hungry and suddenly have this desire to eat because that doesn't fit in with the rest of life there's preparation involved and, and, and all the rest of it so we tend to eat in set, in, in set stages throughout the day. Think of something else on, on, on a basic level. Walking. When a child begins to learn to walk, it has to concentrate hard on doing it. And gradually its body learns the feel and the motions of that. Its nervous system learns how to control the muscles and to do it accurately without without any difficulty and so our bodies develop a habit this is at a very natural level our bodies develop a habit so that eventually um, w within a year or two the child has learned to walk without thinking about it consciously and the subconscious mind takes over and controls that habit now take, take another example I don't see my mum that often but it's important to us both that we communicate with each other and so we have a routine of phoning each other, same day, more or less same time, each week. Now the regular communication is important to us, but without the routine, even though it's important, other things would crowd in and we would forget some of the time. And think of all the other routines that our lives contain, the routines of eating, of washing, of brushing our teeth, 
uh, all, the other, all the other things we do. And we do them through routine because if we didn't, if we only cleaned our teeth when we started to get toothache, that wouldn't be a very good system. So we have a, a routine of habit that means that we make sure those important things are done regularly and they don't get missed. So routine is for things that are important and that must be done regularly. And without routine, we don't do them as often. So then, prayer. Prayer is important and it must be done often. So, we probably need a routine of prayer. What routine do we develop? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, God gave the people of Israel lots of routine, lots of order and, and structure to their lives. Um, he gave them routine to help with their worship and with their sacrifices. Could we just have a look at, at, at this and, and pick up the example, which we're then going to bring through to, um, to, to, a, to a principle relating to prayer. Exodus chapter 30 is where we're going to start. <coughs> Exodus chapter 30. Um, verse 1 he's telling them how to make the tabernacle and how to make everything and how to set everything up ready for them to do their national worship so chapter 30 verse 1 thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon of shittim wood or acacia wood shalt thou make it so they were to make this altar which was for burning incense perfume on um, verse 7 Look how they were to do it. They're given routine. Verse 7. Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning. When he dresseth the lamps, he shall burn incense upon it. So as he went into the tabernacle on the, uh, each morning, and he had various bits of routine to do, he had to trim the lamps to make sure that they continued burning and the wicks were, were the right length and, and so on, and make sure there's sufficient oil in and all the rest of it. As part of that morning routine, he had to go and he had to take a coal of fire off the, off the main altar the altar of burnt offering which was outside and was continually burning he had to take a burning coal of fire off that put it on a censer carry it into the tabernacle and he had to put the coals onto this small, um, this, this small tall altar which was for burning incense on and then he had a, 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 he had a, a little container with the, with the incense oil in it which he would then pour on those hot coals so they would be hot enough that they weren't smoking with a um, with, with, with a, a black smoke but as he poured the incense on suddenly that incense would vaporise and the whole place would be filled with the smoke and the smoke of that incense would go straight up so he had to do that every morning when he was getting things ready for the day's worship in the tabernacle um, verse 8 and when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even he shall burn incense upon it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations so again at evening time he had to offer incense. So they were given this routine of every morning, every evening, as he was doing his rounds, he had to do it as part of that routine. But like all things to do with the tabernacle, incense and the incense altar is symbolic. Psalm 141, and in turn to it, Psalm 141 verse 2, um, the psalmist says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee, as incense and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice so the psalmist is saying my prayer when I pray to God is like incense that's what the incense is representing let's turn to the New Testament to Luke chapter 1 So they offered incense every morning and evening. And the psalmist says, my prayer is like that incense. Like the evening sacrifice. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. This is where um, the, the parents, uh, of, where the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, is, is going about his business in the temple. He was a priest. Verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren. And they were both now well stricken in years. So, so that's, that's the scene set. There's these, this old couple that want to have a child, and they both do the right things, they both believe in God, they both uh, do their best to follow God's commandments. But they had no child, and they wanted one. Verse 8. It came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So his job was that there were so many priests by then that they each had to take a small share of the job. Uh, and and it's, it's thought um, that possibly this would be the only time in his life that he would have to go in. This would be his only opportunity because there were so many priests. So he's doing his job and he's going to make sure it's done right. So his job is this bit that we were reading about in, in Exodus. He had to go in and he had to burn incense when he went into the temple. So he goes in, he takes his incense, and what's happening while the incense is being burnt? Verse 10. The whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So here we've got this link again, that prayer and incense are linked. And the incense was indicative of the prayers going up to God. Um, so, so he's offering, offering the incense and the people are praying outside. Verse 11. There appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. So, I think, especially if this was his only opportunity for doing this duty, but, but regardless of that, I think that that probably wasn't what he was praying for at this time. That was his continual prayer, and had probably been for many years, that they would be able to have a child, which was what they really wanted. And the people outside would be praying about all their concerns, not about Zacharias having a, having a son. But the incense is indicative of their prayers being carried up to God. The book of Revelation makes this clearer to us, uh, Revelation chapter 8, it says, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints, upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So it's all, all symbolic language, of course. But in this symbol, we've got an angel offering incense, which is carrying the prayers of those who believe in God. It's carrying their prayers up to God. So I think we've made a fairly strong case for incense representing um, the prayers of the people and for the fact that they were given a routine of how this incense should be offered morning and evening as part of the morning start-up routine and the evening shutdown routine. They, they offered this incense. And while they offered the incense, the people stood outside praying. So a good habit for prayer is for a routine of praying morning and evening. So at least morning and evening. Well, we've got some other examples of how often people prayed. Daniel chapter 6, um, we find Daniel in captivity in Babylon. Now, when the temple was originally built in Jerusalem, Solomon had made a long prayer asking God to bless them and to look after them in whatever situation they found themselves in. And he, he covers all different eventualities and one of the eventualities he covers was if, if we've sinned and as a punishment for that sin we've been taken away into captivity and then if we pray towards this holy place then please hear us and Daniel picked up on that and Daniel is in Babylon Jerusalem has actually been destroyed and the temple's been ripped down and there is no temple to pray towards and yet Daniel we find Praise um, towards that temple and uses that condition that Solomon had asked God for that, that there was exactly the situation he found himself in in captivity and he could pray towards Jerusalem towards the temple um, chapter 6 of Daniel and 
verse 10. This is when um, Daniel has been set up to be cast into the lion's den. Um, if, he, if he prays to anybody except the king. So Daniel, uh, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, forbidding him to pray to anyone except the king, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So it wasn't a new habit. He wasn't doing this just to flout the, the new law. He had always done this and he wasn't going to stop now just because of some new law that, the, that these um, people who were jealous of him had come up with. So he kneels on his knees in front of his window, a carefully chosen window that was in the direction that he knew Jerusalem to be, even though the object of his desire, as it were, had, had been destroyed. And in that position, he then prays to God, and we'll pick up on that later, but the point here is that it was three times a day he prayed to God. And we know what he prayed for, because later on in the, in the book of Daniel, his prayers are answered and an angel comes and tells him your prayers have been heard right from when you first started praying when you were taken into captivity when you were praying your prayers are answered and God has heard them and you are going to go back to your land so God was listening to his prayers three times a day Psalm 55 David says evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice so David as well three times a day and he even tells us morning time of the morning sacrifice and the incense evening time of the evening incense and at noon he would pray and cry aloud this is a kind of urgent prayer even though it's his own personal prayer probably on his own he's speaking out loud and expressing his emotions and his, and his thoughts to God in heaven and he says God will hear my voice so we've got some examples there of, of, of how we should set up a routine for praying. The Apostle Paul says that we should pray without ceasing. Now, this doesn't mean that we should pray continuously, that, that would be impossible, but rather that we should pray continually. In other words, we should never give up doing it. So it should be a regular thing, and we should develop a habit of doing it where a bit of time is set aside preferably if we're trying to emulate such people as Daniel and David um, three times a day just a, f a few minutes as part of our routine that is the same every single day so that we don't forget it so that it comes straight after whatever the previous activity of our morning routine is so that every time we've done that activity the next thing is prayer and we won't forget it now if we're still in Daniel Turn back a few pages to Daniel chapter 2. Because as well as our routine of prayer, there are also times when other prayers are needed. Daniel chapter 2, the king has had his dream, doesn't understand it, and has asked the wise men what it means, and they can't tell him. So the king is going to have them all destroyed, and he sends a messenger to find all the wise men and to kill them. And so the messenger eventually comes to the house where Daniel and his three friends are living, who were as uh, kind of trainee wise men. Verse 13 of Daniel chapter 2. The decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariok, the king's captain, Why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Ariok made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, his companions. So they probably shared a house together, these, these four young men. So he went home and he told them, this is what's going on. I've asked the king that he'll give us time and we can ask God to show us the interpretation of his dream. Verse 18. That they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret and Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God for ever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changeth the times and seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Now that prayer doesn't make much sense until you have considered what God had just revealed to him, that it was about removing kings and setting up kings. Um, verse 23, I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hath given me wisdom and might. So what happens here is that these four men gather together. Daniel explains the situation to them and says, look, we all need to pray. So they hold a prayer meeting for a specific purpose, the four of them. And they pray to God that he might reveal the thing to them. And then having done that, it seems, they, they go to bed to sleep. And in the night, God reveals the answer to Daniel in a dream. So waking up straight away, Daniel then, his first reaction is to go back into prayer again. No mention of what, what the others did, but certainly Daniel goes straight back into praying to God. And he doesn't forget to thank God for what he just asked for. So first of all, he asks for something, God gives it, and he's not forgetful to, to say thank you. So there's an example of a prayer being uh, 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 or like a prayer meeting if you like being called for a specific purpose in Acts chapter 12 we won't turn it up um, for time's sake but um, we, we have a similar kind of thing going on the apostle Peter was being held in prison and knowing that um, th that it was, it was quite possible that he would be killed at the end of his um, what would probably be a short prison term um, the, the, all the other believers were all gathered together at someone's house praying they were all together praying it says Peter therefore was kept in prison but prayer was made without ceasing of the ecclesia unto God for him so they were all together praying for Peter's release and, and God answers the prayer and an angel comes in the night and releases Peter from prison and then leaves Peter to go on his way. And he goes straight to the house where they, all, where they all are praying. And knocks on the door. And even though they were praying. And even though they were hoping for an answer. When Peter actually turns up in the middle of their meeting. They can't believe it. And, and they're shocked by it. But nevertheless there's another example of them all together praying for a specific thing. Now, probably the, the, the quickest prayer uh, and, and most instantaneous and um, spontaneous prayer that we have an example of is probably the one that Nehemiah prays. And we don't even know what he said in it. Nehemiah, first of all, as, presumably as part of his routine prayers, had made a long prayer asking, asking God to forgive them for the things they've done wrong, a bit like Daniel, and to let them go back to their land. Um, and also to give him good success when he went to his master, the king. And because he was going to ask him for something very specific. He was going to ask that he might be allowed some time off to go back to find out what things were like in Jerusalem. With ideas of starting the, the ball rolling for getting them to go back to their land. So he prayed. He'd ask God, look after me, make things go right for me when I go to ask what could be quite a, quite a dangerous question of his boss and then the next day he, he, goes, he goes to the king and he's, he's looking sad and the, because, because he's worrying about the state that Jerusalem's in and what's happened and what's happening to their people and he's got all these things on his mind now he was the king's wine taster so it's not a good idea for a wine taster to look sad because the king's going to get a bit suspicious as to as, as to why what you know what's in the wine and whether the wine taster is hiding something so this is why I say it's, it's a potentially dangerous situation so the king says why are you sad and so Nehemiah says um, well it's because my, my land my city um, he says why should not my countenance be sad when the city the place of my father's sepulchres lies waste the gates thereof are consumed with fire things are in a, in a bad way back where I come from so the king says, well, what, what do you want? Are, are, you, are you trying to ask me for something? 
for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it please the king, and so on. Now, he actually says a prayer between being asked a question and giving the answer. Now, what could he have said? He can't have said much more than, God, please help me now, or, or words to that effect. And then he straight away gives his answer to the king. That's a spontaneous prayer. That's, that's God being every part of a person's life and recognising that he can help in any situation. And there's never a time when it's wrong to pray. David, again in the Psalms, writes about praying on his bed in the night watches when he can't sleep because of the worries and the pressures that are coming upon him. And it works. And speak from experience on that one. It, it works. If there's things bothering you and weighing you down and you, and, you, and, you, and you wake up because of it and can't get back to sleep, then telling God all your troubles is, is, is a great help. Um, another wonderful, we won't look at it because of time, but... Um, in 2nd of Kings chapter 19 you've got Hezekiah who receives a letter challenging him from his enemy and his natural reaction to receiving that letter the first thing he does is he takes the letter and he runs into the temple and he spreads it out so that God can see it and he prays to God that was his instinctive instant reaction to receiving that bad news so there is a place for this kind of spontaneous prayer as well but it needs to be based on that basis of the routine prayer. All these people, as well as going to God, instantly, when they needed help, they were already regular, routine prayers. So having decided when we're going to pray, and having set up a routine to help us to pray, how do we prepare for, for praying? Well, like meditation... It requires a focused mind. Meditation probably is quite a fashionable thing these days, um, usually some kind of Buddhist or Zen meditation or something like that. But there is a lot of references to people meditating in the Bible, and the Jews meditate in their own specific way today. Meditation requires a focused mind. We need to, first of all, establish focus, and then keep focus to prevent our mind wandering onto other things and to forget what we're focusing on because it's very easy to get distracted and prayer and meditation are, are, are very close to one another meditation is just considering the things prayer is actually then expressing those things whether, whether vocally or internally expressing those things to God let's go to Matthew chapter 6 this is the, this is the parallel Account to what, what we read in Luke um, as, as our introduction um, where Jesus explains to his disciples how to pray by giving them what we know today as the Lord's Prayer. Um, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, he, he, we get a little bit more information about what Jesus actually told them in this record. Uh, chapter 6 verse 5. Jesus says, When thou prayest, Thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. Men see them and are impressed, or not as the case may be. That's their reward, that's what they want. Verse 6, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So, he says that you should go into the closet. A small private room is what it means. A place where you can be apart. You should shut the door to, to, to shut out any distraction and to prevent interruption. And then you pray in secret, in quiet. And God can see and hear in secret. He can see our internal, he, he, he can hear our internal dialogue all the time. He, can, he knows what we're saying to him and he sees in secret and he will reward us openly now this is one thing you notice with all these people we've been talked about we've, we've, we've talked about praying God always answers in some way sometimes very directly like when he gave Daniel a vision 
sometimes much more indirectly but he always answers in some way to the person who genuinely prays to him so we found a suitable place that's free from interruptions as part of our morning, evening, lunchtime routine we found a, a small quiet place where we can shut ourselves away be free from interruptions and now we need to focus and when we looked at Daniel we saw Daniel kneeling by his window in the direction of Jerusalem it was an invisible object to focus but by making that deliberate action turning towards Jerusalem kneeling down on the floor and, and praying he had given himself even though he couldn't see Jerusalem even though Jerusalem wasn't even there anymore thinking about that thinking about that object of focus and, and it helped him to establish focus and maintain focus throughout his prayer perhaps something like that could help us now our position that we take up can help maintain our focus. We read of Solomon that when he prayed, and this is, this is that same prayer that Daniel made use of, this prayer when he, was, um, when he finished building the temple and he prayed for God to bless the temple. He kneeled down on the floor with his hands spread up to heaven. And he did that in public. That wasn't just a private prayer, this was a public prayer. He kneeled down on the floor a convention is, is, is preventing me from, from doing that but I'm, I'm almost tempted to kneel down on the floor and spread my hands up to heaven as, as a demonstration but our convention tends to, um, to prevent us doing that kind of thing but that's what Solomon did he kneeled down, spread his hands up to heaven in, in, in a gesture of giving what he was saying giving it to God as if when we give things to other people we spread our hands out towards them but God is in heaven so we spread our hands up to him now the Bible, in, in it just we're not going to go to lots of references to, to this, but they, they can be found. The Bible refers to lifting up hands, because this helps us focus on handing our prayer up to God, giving it up to him. It refers to bowing the head, bowing the body, kneeling, having our faces towards the ground, prostrating ourselves, as lying flat out on your, on your front on the floor. Now, these attitudes, however much or little we adopt of it, see, see there's, there's various stages there, aren't there? There's bowing the head, there's bowing the body down, there's kneeling down on the floor, and there is lying flat on the floor. And they're sort of all different grades of the same thing. They're attitudes that are helping us, they're positions that are helping us to become aware of our littleness in God's sight. Um, like we read of the Jesus example of the publican and the, uh, and, the, and the Pharisee where the Pharisee is quite bold in his prayer and the publican is so ashamed of the way he's behaved in the past that it says he dare not even lift up his eyes to heaven he bowed his head to show that he was ashamed and he couldn't, he couldn't even bring himself to look up towards God so bowing our head, bowing our body, kneeling prostrating ourselves on the ground whatever stage of that we feel appropriate helps us to be aware, aware of our littleness in God's sight and that helps our attitude to the words that we're, we're going to say in our prayer Jesus refers to standing to pray because standing helps us to keep because we have to keep our balance when we stand it helps us to not move around and fidget and, and, and get distracted so, so standing can also help us keep focused it refers to people looking up to heaven when they pray having God himself as the object of our focus and it refers to speaking aloud or at least moving our lips as we say our prayer because this, I don't know if you've ever tried it but saying a prayer in private on your own and actually saying it out loud really really helps to keep focused on the thing that you're actually praying about or concentrating on by saying the words out loud it's the same with reading um, if you actually on your own it seems a bit of a bizarre thing to do but once upon a time nobody read in their head they all read out loud um, because it n never occurred to anybody that you could read without actually saying, saying the words um, but on your own if you read out loud then you tend to absorb a lot more than if you just read silently now one thing and this is 
this is just a, um, a, a, a thought. The Bible doesn't ever seem to refer to people sitting to pray, which to me suggests that that's an unsuitable position to take up for prayer. Although obviously, if standing for, for the period of your prayer or kneeling or, or, or whatever, um, because, of, you know, because of our bodily limitations or age or infirmity or whatever, if that makes us so uncomfortable or causes us or causes us so much pain that that could actually be a distraction in itself so obviously there's 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 um, limits to to what you, what you can do but the bible doesn't refer to sitting down to prayer and it con- and that kind of contrasted with jesus who sits down at god's right hand who has sat down at god's right hand in heaven to intercede on our behalf and to accept our prayers and to present them to god and he depicts the faithful people when the kingdom of God comes he depicts the faithful sitting down in the kingdom of God because their work is done but until the work is done it's always depicted as standing to pray, standing to do the work of God now we need to honestly review our normal praying conditions and ensure that nothing we see or hear will disturb our prayers So in other words, we need to be in a quiet room. We need to have our mobile phone off or on silent. No TV on, no radio on, anything like that. Nothing nothing visual around us that might might distract us. We need to be in a situation where no one is likely to burst in on us and disturb our prayer. We need to set aside time so that we're not rushed, so that we're not... continually getting distracted by thinking about the next thing that's going to come after the prayer part of our routine do we close our eyes well we tend to close our eyes when we pray and I think most people probably do this uh, out out of habit and tradition we do it to avoid distraction but the bible doesn't actually mention it, a closing of eyes the only things the bible says about closing eyes are that People who close their eyes are closing their eyes to God's teaching and not receptive to it. Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't close our eyes. I'm just saying um, that this doesn't seem to be something that is ever suggested as, uh, as, as beneficial to prayer. When the Jews meditate, in contrast to Buddhist meditation, which involves getting yourself into the right position, again, there's, there's reasoning, there's good reasoning behind that. Closing your eyes... And, and, and then meditating when the, when the Jews medi- meditate in their traditional um, uh, meditation as part of their worship they meditate with their eyes open usually sort of fixed on, on some uninteresting spot on the floor but they meditate with their eyes open just a thought ok so we've, we've found a time to pray we've, we've, um, we've worked out how to prepare for our prayer now what are we going to say in our prayer? Well firstly, let's think about what not to say in a prayer. And we get this from what Jesus says um, before he gives the Lord's Prayer. Again in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Having gone into the closet and praying in secret and so on. Verse 7, when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. So, firstly, no vain repetitions. These vain repetitions are like prayer book prayers. Saying the words off by heart, saying words every time, with no real thought for them. Jesus says this, makes this statement, just before he gives the example of the Lord's Prayer. And if ever a prayer was used as a vain repetition, it's the Lord's Prayer when people chant it with no thought people who don't believe the kingdom of God will come on earth chant unthinkingly thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so it's now that very example that Jesus gave um, has now become a vain repetition secondly our prayers must not contain any self-aggrandizement making ourselves out to be God reminding God how good we are and how he really ought to do something for us. And again, Jesus gives the example of the Pharisee and the publican. The, pub, the Pharisee basically says, I thank thee that I'm better than everybody else. That's not acceptable to God. 
that kind of prayer will not be heard and then the next thing he says is don't uh, the next point is that we shouldn't say more or make long prayers for the sake of it the Pharisees did it they made long long prayers so that people would think he's been praying for absolutely ages he must be so good so holy there might be other reasons why we make long prayers um, but we should say as much or as little as needed and no more we shouldn't make short prayers because we haven't got time but on the other hand we shouldn't make long prayers that go round in circles and don't say anything of, of, of any particular value again in that parable of the, the Pharisee and the publican the publican just says Lord be merciful to me a sinner and that's, that's what he said that was all that needed to be said. He was conscious of the fact that he was sinful. So much he couldn't bring himself to look up towards God. And he bowed his head and he said, Lord be merciful to me. Because that's the one thing he knew he needed. And that prayer was acceptable. In contrast, you've got reference to Jesus spending the whole night in prayer. Can you imagine that? Communicating with God constantly for a whole night. Without going around in circles and... and, and any kind of vain repetitions and trite phrases or whatever else a genuine prayer all night long so our prayers should be as long or as short as they need to be and no more they certainly shouldn't be used in any way to impress other people what do we, what do we say then? well we have to praise God we have to ask him for things and we have to thank him for those things when he gives them to us but first of all praising God so Jesus in, his, in, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, after this manner, pray ye. He doesn't say, say these words over and over and over again, ad infinitum. He says, after this manner, in this way, following this general pattern, this is how you should pray. So let's then think about the elements of the Lord's Prayer. He starts with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So firstly, we have to address him appropriately according to our relationship with him. Whether we call him Almighty God, whether we call him Father, whether we call him by his name, Yahweh. Scripture is full of different examples, and each one appropriate to the situation in which the person praying found themselves. We have to recognise our position before him, our Father in heaven. He's in heaven, we're on earth. He's the mighty God, and we're sinful men and women. And meditating upon that brings a true perspective of how we approach him and how we talk to him hallowed be thy name his name is holy, it's separate, it's special set apart from everything else because he is the God the only God who created heaven and earth so first of all we have to concentrate our minds on that fact God is our father in heaven secondly thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven so this is the whole purpose of life Ultimately, having established that God is the mighty God and that he's a father to those that love him his whole purpose is that his kingdom should come and his will shall be done on earth so by saying words to this effect following this pattern not necessarily those exact words we're acknowledging his purpose and saying that we agree with that and we want that to happen as well next then are the things that the person praying is asking for give us this day our daily bread forgive us our trespasses lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil four different, four different things four different categories of things and we haven't really got time to look at lots and lots of examples they're all there and if you just find if you just find references throughout the Bible Old Testament and New Testament to people praying there's so many wonderful examples but this is where we ask for things as part of our prayer now there's certain guidelines um, that we're given really um, for what we should ask for firstly they must fit in with his plan that you've just acknowledged you've acknowledged that God's plan is to set up the kingdom on earth and that you want to be part of that so whatever you ask for whatever you ask God for must fit in with that so like the, the publican who prayed Lord be merciful to me only by God being merciful to him could he have a part, could he have the ability to serve God and have a hope to be in his kingdom. So, he, having acknowledged God's purpose, he then prays in accordance with that. 
they must fit in with what God has said he will give us. Jesus tells us that God knows of all the things we need, even before we ask him. He knows what we need. He knows what we need. He also knows what we want, but he's not necessarily going to give us what we want, because it might not be good for us. So what we ask for must fit in with what God has said he will give us. So our daily necessities, but not necessarily a new sports car. Unless in some way that would be valuable to us um, in, in, in trying to get to God's kingdom. Can't necessarily see how that would work. So it must fit in with what God has said he'll give us. They must be things that will benefit you or others spiritually. So helping you to learn about him. Helping you to create a godly environment in your household. Helping you to deal in difficult situations with, with certain people. Like Nehemiah, knowing he had to go before the king. Wanting a good result from it. For God's benefit. So it had to be for, it has to be something that benefits you or other people on the way to God's kingdom. And lastly, we must recognise that God knows best. And he answers or provides in the best way for us. We have to submit everything to his will and judgment. So if we ask for a specific outcome and God knows that isn't the best outcome, then he's not going to answer that prayer in the way we expect him to. But if we ask for him to provide the best outcome to the situation and accept that he knows best, then our prayer will be answered very obviously. James chapter 4 says that ye ask and ye receive not because ye seek to consume it upon your lusts. They were asking for, for things that, for themselves that weren't particularly for their spiritual benefit. And this includes those kind of people who never pray, maybe aren't even convinced that there is a God. And then when something bad happens, they suddenly turn to God in prayer and expect him to sort it all out for them. This is again where the routine prayer comes in. If, you, if prayer is a habit, then you're already in that communication with God. And God will then listen to your emergency prayers, as it were, as well. Let's just turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, he talks about the fact that sometimes it's difficult to know what to say. Sometimes we can't find the, the, the words that, that we need. We don't quite know how to express ourselves. We can feel what, what we need to say to God, but we don't quite know how to put it into words or, or what to say or what to ask for. We just, we're just aware of a need. Well, look at verse 26 of Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, in my Bible, they've put a capital S on Spirit, but I don't think it should have one, because it's not talking about God's Holy Spirit power. It's talking about our spirit. Uh, our attitude and our emotions it helps our infirmities we don't always know what to say in our prayers but the spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered it pleads, our very emotions plead with God to hear our prayers verse 27 and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit spirit with a capital S um, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God so, we don't always know the right thing to say, but if we're doing our best to pray and to ask God what we, for what we need, then Jesus in heaven will ask God to give us what is spiritually best for us. And once we commit ourselves to aiming for the kingdom of God and to following Christ, then all things work for our good, as it goes on to, to say in, further on in, in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, for them who are called according to his purpose. So those who love God and have committed themselves to him, then all things work for our ultimate good. This is our ultimate good, not our current pleasure. So it might not be something we enjoy. The answer to our prayer might not be something we enjoy. It might not be something we will like. It, it might be something painful and unpleasant, but it will work out for our ultimate good. 
and we have to accept that God knows best. So this is referring to those who as adults have believed and made a conscious decision to follow Christ and have been baptised in water to wash away their old sins and to start a new life. Now if you haven't got that far, what then? Can you still pray? Will God hear you? Well, you can pray. You can pray that God will lead you to that position. And we have the example of Cornelius and, uh, and the other example of the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, Cornelius was a Roman centurion and he prayed like this. He prayed that God would show him what he needed to do. And as a response to that prayer, Acts chapter 10 records how that God sent the Apostle Peter to teach him about the gospel and then to baptise him. So God will always hear those who genuinely approach him, seeking to know him and to praise him. And he will help them find their way to the kingdom. Just one last thought then. Our prayers should not be selfish. Scripture is full of examples of people praying for others. Jesus makes his prayer inclusive. Not my Father which art in heaven, but our Father which art in heaven. Paul, in many of his letters, tells his readers that he prays for them continually. Repeatedly prays for them. So many people that Paul knew and had been in and had some influence over. And he prays for them all continually. Let's finish then with James chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms and give praise to God. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the ecclesia and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. So let's pray carefully, thoughtfully, and ask God to forgive our sins and those of others and lead us all to his kingdom. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk.